Amen. Thank you again to Pastor Mike and the praise team. What a good morning already. Just a worshipful morning already. Well, it's Palm Sunday. We're continuing in on our, ser- our series, Jesus Loves You More. Jesus Loves You More. And again, the premise there is that no matter how much we love Jesus, we will never love Him more than He loves us. And that He has demonstrated that love to us, particularly in the cross and in the resurrection. Uh, we've looked at the passionate Savior. The passionate Savior, looking at uh, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. We looked at last week the passionate prayer which was the, the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And today, we're going to look at the passionate king. The passionate king. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And if you know your Bibles well, you know that we just went out of order. Because the Garden of Gethsemane happens much later during the week, this week. Palm Sunday is the first day into Jerusalem. Then the, the passionate prayer comes on Friday. So, we are going a little out of order, but that's because this Sunday, of course, is Palm Sunday. And we want to talk about his entry into Jerusalem. This is sometimes called Holy Week because it celebrates this last and final week of Jesus' life. Now, this is Palm Sunday. Come Thursday is Maundy Thursday. That's not Monday Thursday, by the way. It's Maundy. It's a different word entirely. Uh, Maundy comes from the word commandment. Uh, this is the commandment, love one another. And uh, this Thursday, again, at 6 o'clock, we're going to be celebrating by a presentation by Mitch Foreman on the Seder meal itself, on the Last Supper meal. I had mentioned that we're going to have uh, uh, desserts afterwards. That's not the case. We're going to have some snacks out in the foyer, just so you know. So if you're coming ready for snack, for uh, dessert afterwards, we're not having it. We're having snacks out in the foyer, maybe before and a little after uh, the service this Thursday. And then Friday is known as Good Friday. That's the day that Jesus laid down his life, the day that he went to the cross. And all of this leads up to Easter Sunday, or Resurrection Sunday. The day we celebrate is resurrection from the dead. The day that literally changed the world forever. Forever. Literally changed the world. And I just want to encourage you again, uh, this Easter Sunday is probably one of the best days to invite friends and family members and co-workers and neighbors to church. Because some, if you're not, you're not going to any other church, a lot of people would like to go to church on Easter Sunday. So I've encouraged you to invite your one. Invite your one. Think of one person. Think over it. Pray over it. And pray for that person. And then think about that invitation uh, this week. I have mine in mind. I'm getting ready, praying through, uh, for that invitation. So at least one person. Actually, interestingly enough, statistics show that 40% of people who are invited to church will come. 40%. That's pretty high, actually, I think. 40%. So if everyone in our congregation invited somebody to church for Easter Sunday, that would be an extra 60 people or here because you invite, you took the time to invite someone to come to church. But like I said, we're not going there right now. Oh, by the way, as you invite your one, if you'd like a card or something, we have them all by all the doorways. There's a little card here that has the address of the church, the phone number, the, um, the website, and all that. So if you want to hand somebody something, feel free to take as many of these as you think you'll give out. So feel free to grab those on the way out. Palm Sunday is the day that we celebrate Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, which is a very significant event because it celebrates Jesus as the King. But as we're going to see, he is not just any old king. He is a passionate king. Again, with that double meaning of passion. He's worthy of our praise. Look with me. We're going to look at Luke 19, 28 to 40. There is a, uh, for any visitors here, uh, uh, we have uh, the scripture right in the bulletin. We're going to have it up on the screen. There's Bibles around. Or if you're looking down at your phone, reading the Bible off of your phone, that's fine too. So for anyone here who's 
over, an older generation. If you see people looking at their phone, that doesn't necessarily mean they're playing a, a game. And maybe that they're reading the scripture right out of their phone, just so you know that, by the way. Uh, but we're going to be reading Luke 19, 28 to 40. Praise Jesus as the passionate king. We read this. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage in Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. <laughs> we're called to praise Jesus as the passionate king. It's an outline in your bulletin as well if you'd like to take notes or just see where we're going. Verses 28 to 34, praise Jesus for his control. His sovereignty, His providence. Then 35 to 38, praise Him for His power, His authority. And then praise the King in the face of opposition. 39 to 40. So 28 to 34, look what's happening there. Jesus demonstrates that He is in control. So He is going to Jerusalem. Uh, remember Jesus, most of His ministry was spent up in the north in Galilee. Except for on these feast days, He would come to Jerusalem. But He has never come to Jerusalem sort of this publicly as he's gained all this fame throughout all of Israel. Well, he's going to Jerusalem, and it says here he goes to the Mount of Olives. We learn that that's sort of his hideout. That's his resting place in the evenings. That's where he goes to relax at the end of the days. But then he sends two disciples out uh, to one of these small villages, Bethphage and Bethany, to get a colt. Uh, not, not the gun, for any of our gun enthusiasts here. Talk about a, an animal here. I, I threw a little post online. I said my, my daughter went to her first dance, and I uh, said, should I get a shotgun or a handgun? I didn't really have, realize we had so many gun enthusiasts in our church. So many people commented with very specific types of guns I should get uh, in preparation for that. But he's not talking about a gun. He's talking about uh, an animal. A colt is a young horse or a young donkey. And in this case, a young donkey. He has, very, he has a very specific plan. You're going to find a donkey that's tied in, in, uh, up. It's going to be one that has never been sat upon. The owners are going to ask you why you're taking it. And you're going to respond very specifically, the Lord has need, and they are going to allow it. Now some people say, some commentators say, that Jesus actually planned this. That he knew the village, he went to somebody, talked to them about needing this donkey, sort of went through the whole thing, and that ultimately what they're doing is just going through and following through the plan that he had. I don't think that's what's being communicated here. I think this has the tone of the supernatural. Doesn't it? I mean, one thing you would say is, if it was just a, a, Jesus made some plans and now he's calling them to follow through with the plans, why even include it? I mean, there's so many things in the Bible that are not included, so many things that happen in Jesus' life that are not included 
in the scriptures because they're really not of great significance. I'm sure he ate a lot of meals and he did a lot of different things that aren't in here. I think there's something supernatural going on here that he has ordained this to be the case, having never visited and seen this donkey, that he sovereignly knows what's going to happen. The point is that Jesus is in control. Years before this, he ordained a colt to be born. A young donkey. He made sure that nobody ever sat upon that donkey. Nobody ever rode that specific donkey in preparation. That it would be owned by these very specific villagers in a a specific spot in that town. That it would be prepared and ready to go on this very day. That somehow, maybe it's by a vision or dream or somehow, that there would be a certain word said to them, the Lord has need of this, and that they would let go of their possession. He works sovereignly over this whole situation. I think the idea is being communicated here is Jesus remains entirely in control. Now, it'd be easy to think that, that he's not in control because soon after this, what happens? He's betrayed by one of his own disciples. So people would say, did he not see that coming? He's arrested at nighttime. He is ultimately sent to the Romans and he is crucified and killed. It seems like Jesus is not in control. But here he's demonstrating to his own disciples, yes, I remain entirely in control of the situation. I like what one commentator says, Jesus' prescience increases in proportion to his proximity to the cross, his understanding of what's happening. Jesus is not unaware of the storm clouds gathering before him, nor is he an unwilling victim of them. He remains completely in control. Now, other people think they're in control. That's the funny thing. You you have the Pharisees. They think they're in control of the situation as they arrest Jesus. The Romans think they're really in control because they're the authority. The Zealots think they're using Jesus for their own purposes. His own disciples think that they know what's going on. And, of course, the enemy himself, meaning Satan, thinks that he has control of the situation. And ultimately, they all work like pawns for God to work out his purpose. Friends, praise the king who is in control of your life as well. Many of us are control freaks. I won't ask for a show of hands, but uh, many of us are control freaks. We like to be in control of the situation, right? That's the situation. You know that uh, big thing nowadays are are self-driving cars. You guys ready for self-driving cars? This is probably gonna happen within a generation, by the way. They're really moving fast with self-driving vehicles. Uh, This is how they work. They use radar, laser light, GPS, odometry, and computer vision. The computers interpret sensory information on the road to identify appropriate navigation paths as well as obstacles that come in the way, other cars or anything that's in the road, and recognize signage. And they can do far more than we can do because they know what traffic is coming and 30 miles ahead and what turns to take and all of that. But you guys know what's going to happen. You're going to want to grab that wheel from that automated car. It's going to be hard to sit back for the younger generation, they're going to be so used to it. But those who have been driving for a while, it's going to be hard to sit back and let the car just drive itself. <laughs> well, the truth of the matter is, airplanes already do this, by the way. It would result in far less accidents, far less fatalities, and much better gas mileage and much better driving. <laughs> but we're control freaks. We don't want to grab a hold of that wheel. And we do the same, I think, when it comes to the Lord, don't we? I want to grab the wheel from God. I'm in control. He's not in control. And what do we do? We usually crash it if we grab the wheel from the Lord. We're called to relinquish control, recognize, relax, rest in the sovereignty of God, enjoy the fact that He is in control. 
of your life. He even uses and ordains suffering and difficulty. You know, I was talking to somebody, I was teaching an adult Bible study, and I said, do you think God can use evil? Do you think God can use suffering in your life uh, for good? And one person in the class said, if he can't, then he can't work with any of us. <laughs> Which I thought was a great answer. God always often uses suffering and difficulty and hardship ultimately for his plan and his purposes. Even a fire where you lose all of your stuff and you say God is still good and remains in control and will work good out of this. He is the Lord over life and death. I was uh, riding in a plane this week, flying over to a conference and uh, I, I flew my whole life because my dad's an airline mechanic so I, I grew, up, grew up with flying privileges. But this was the most turbulence I've ever had in an airplane. <laughs> I was flying out of Indianapolis, going to Raleigh-Durham, and it was the most turbulence. It was a little plane. It was a little RJ. If you know your planes, these are not big planes. And I was in the second to last row. And the poor lady and I sit next to me as we were like literally coming out of the seat in this turbulence. are looking at each other saying, wow, this is crazy, ridiculous. But I remember thinking, even if this is the end, which I didn't think it was, but even if it was, the Lord is sovereign. And he's good. And I trust him. It'll be okay in the end. Friends, understand that though God uses difficulty and even evil for his good in the end, he himself is all good. There is no evil in him. He takes and turns evil for good, but he himself is the one who is truly good. That Jesus is the king who has no shadow. I love that uh, children's book by R.C. Sproul, The King Without a Shadow. He's this particular king who has a, a shadow, because we all have shadows, and he's wondering why he has to have a shadow. And he goes around and says, we all have shadows, and he tries to figure out the answer about why everyone, including kings, have to have a shadow. And that's because we block the light, because there's darkness in us when, we, when the light tries to shine by us. But as he searches and searches for the answer, he does learn about a king who has no shadow, because he himself is pure light. The king without a shadow is the one who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey that day. For praise him because he's in control of your life and he's in control of even your salvation. Friends, you know, you know that you're being here right now. Whether you're a regular member, regular attender, a member, or you're visiting here for the first time, this is in God's sovereign plan. It's not just by chance and happenstance and God remains completely in control. Your faith is in his hands and completely in control. He's the one who draws people to himself with a million different circumstances and leads them to faith in Jesus. I met a guy, I talked to him, we had the plane, one of the planes was uh, delayed. So I talked to a guy at one of the airports, he was a Christian, his name was George, he's about my age. And he was sort of uh, described how he came to faith. He grew up in, in Greece, he was Greek, and then he went to school in London. Uh, and there in London, he met a girl. That's what happens all the time, right? A Christian girl who invited him to church and invited him to the Alpha class. Anyone, anyone know what the Alpha class is? Yeah, good. I, I think I may, we may do one here. That's how good the material is. But, uh, and there he came to faith in Jesus by watching, listening through the Alpha class. Then he moved to the Middle East, lived there in the Middle East for a while. And there was a small group of Christians. And because of that, they, they were tight-knit as a community to begin to grow in his faith. And now he ended up somewhere in, uh, near here in Boston. You see, God's hand of sovereignly working over his life to bring him to faith and to use him as he now leads an alpha class, by the way, at his church today. God remains in control. He's the king who is sovereign over everything. 
even a donkey, and even everything in your life. He's the king who has power, 35 to 38. He's the king who has power. Praise the king for his power, 35 to 38. The crowd praises Jesus for his power. They bring the colt to Jesus. They set him on it. They spread cloaks on the colt. Uh, and they spread cloaks over the road. And you might say, where are the palm branches, Rick? I thought this was Palm Sunday. Well, the other Gospels, remember there's four accounts of Jesus' life. This is one. There are other ones. The other Gospels say not just cloaks, but they also lay palm branches, which would be the most readily available branches on the road as well. As if to say, let the king come in and sort of laying out the red carpet. This is their way of laying out the green carpet, I guess you would say. This is the way of laying the way for his entry into Jerusalem. Millions, literally millions of people are there in Jerusalem Celebrating the Passover at this time. And Luke tells us that a multitude of disciples are there praising Jesus, rejoicing with a loud voice. Now, I used to have a, a sort of a low view of this multitude. And you've probably heard this in different sermons at different churches at times, that the multitude is finicky. One day they're praising him as king, and then a few days later they are rejecting and calling for his crucifixion. That most likely is not the case. Those are two different crowds. This crowd is filled with visitors, pilgrims, those who have come from Galilee and surrounding towns to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The group that later on calls out for his crucifixion is probably mostly those who live there in Jerusalem, haven't been following his ministry to any detail. These are different uh, groups of people. But it says here that this group had seen his mighty works. In other words, they've watched it. They've witnessed his power. And they call out, blessed is the king, glory to God in the highest. And friends, those are messianic or messiah terms. They're recognizing him to be the one that's promised throughout all the ages he was come to visit. Friends, we praise Jesus for his power. For his power. Not only his control, but his power. Luke describes these as real, these are real disciples. Now, whether they continued after the cross and the resurrection to follow him, uh, we don't know. But nevertheless, these are disciples who have been following his ministry over the last three years. They know him. They're not just a fleeting group. They know Jesus, and they're excited about the fact that he has now entered Jerusalem as king. They know his power. They've witnessed his power again and again. They've seen him heal lepers. They see him walk up to somebody who is literally dying of leprosy and say, be clean. And watch the leprosy disappear from them. They've watched Jesus raise the dead. You know, Jesus had at least three resurrections. Three people he raised from the dead in his ministry. One of them, of course, the most well-known one is Lazarus. Then Jairus' daughter. And then the widow of Nain's son, which is probably the least known one. Jesus at times would raise the dead. They've seen him cast out demons. I love the story of the the Gadarene demoniac. There's a man who is possessed. It's almost a a horror story. There's a man possessed. He calls himself Legion because he's so filled with a number of demonic influences in his life. And he's so violent. He lives naked in a tomb. And nobody goes that way. They can't chain him and keep him captive because he has the strength to break the chains. And everybody stays away from him. And when he comes into contact with Jesus, it's as if Jesus steps into the horror movie. He steps into the nightmare and he says, be gone. And the man is in his right mind sitting there, clean. They've watched his power as he's entered Jerusalem. The interesting thing is they haven't witnessed his greatest power. His greatest power is yet to come. The cross and the resurrection where Jesus comes back from the dead himself in a resurrected body 
and claims he has died for our sins and that all who put their faith in him can be saved. Friends, we praise Jesus for his power. For his power. You know, it's interesting. The Bible says that the kingdom is all about power. That's what it's about. This is uh, second, uh, 1 Corinthians 4. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. That's the real question, right? Is our faith, is our belief, is it just all talk? I mean, is that what it is? It's just a set of doctrines that we hold to, a set of a worldview that we claim? Or is there actual power in what we believe and in the king that we follow? Does it have the power to change lives? Does it have the power to save families, save marriages, and save parents with their kids? Does it have the power to do the impossible? That's the real question, isn't it? And friends, from my perspective, I see it all the time. Lives changed. Marriages saved. Things that are absolutely impossible happening. Because the kingdom is about power. As I said in the beginning, Jesus said, I will build my church. And here we are 2,000 years later, and the church that he created has been unstoppable. Unstoppable. Changed the entire Roman Empire within a generation after his resurrection. Spread from there into the whole of Western civilization. And right now is changing the East and the South, Asia and Africa and South America are being radically changed by the gospel. And there is nothing over 2,000 years that has been able to even slow the spread of the gospel. That's why Jesus says, by the way, go, go into the mission field, go to the nations and bring them the good news about Jesus as the true king. Have confidence in him because as he says, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Christ is on our side and the kingdom is about power and the power is with you. Go forth and watch it change the world. Some of you say, I want to see this. Where's this power? I want to see this. How do you see it? Very simple. Follow Jesus. (laughs) Just keep following him and you will see it if you're new to the faith. Say to the Lord, I'm yours, Lord. Wherever you call me to go, I'm going to go. Whatever you call me to do, I'm going to do. Whatever ministry you want me to be involved in, I'm yours. And I guarantee you will watch him work in power. Understand, he only works in his way, in his time. We can't force God to do what we want. He doesn't heal everybody we pray for. He doesn't do everything that we ask of him. He's God, not us. But he will work in power. And you will witness and to praise him for it. Friends, I think for our church here, First Baptist Church, speaking to our members and regular attenders, if we want to see God work and revitalize our church, and I hope he does continue to do this, to do this work of revitalization, this is what we need to do. Recognize the king has power. That the kingdom of God is about power to change lives, save families, and do the impossible. And we will watch him work. But more than that, 39 to 40, we praise the king in the face of opposition. In the face of opposition. Not everyone is so crazy about this new king who's come to town. And we learn that very quickly. Verse 39, the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders. So when you think of the, the head of, the, of Israel, that's the Sanhedrin. That's made up of half Pharisees, 
half priests, half Pharisees, half Sadducees. That's what the priesthood is made up of. But Pharisees go far beyond that small group of people. These are just sort of local leaders, local religious leaders, kind of like pastors, I guess, that are all throughout Israel. Well, there's tons of them in the crowd, as you might expect. And they are not happy about the crowd claiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the King to come. And if you have to explore their motivation, I think it's uh, pretty obvious, it's jealousy. (laughs) Jesus isn't their pawn. He doesn't do whatever they want them to do. He doesn't follow their traditions. He keeps sort of condemning them for putting their traditions above the Lord, God's word, and so they're jealous of him. And when they hear all of this praise, they say to Jesus, rebuke your disciples, tell them to stop. Stop talking about this king stuff. Stop talking about this Messiah stuff. It's, it's not good. And Jesus, I love Jesus' response. If they are silent, even the stones will rise up and praise him. <laughs> praise is gonna happen. It's gonna happen whether you like it or not. There's no way to stop it. If inanimate objects have to stand up and start praising the king come, then that's what's going to happen. I think of the Old Testament, the trees clap their hands in praise of God. That all of creation speaks about the greatness and the glory of God. I was talking to Frank afterwards and he was talking about a Spurgeon sermon that said, you have tablets, the, 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 the law is written in tablets of stone. So there's stones praising God. That altars were built with stones raised up to praise God. So even, even the stones themselves declare the praise of God. But notice, friends, this side of heaven, not everyone, not everyone praises Jesus. Actually, Jesus' entire life, his whole life, he's faced opposition and hatred. As he was a baby, he had Herod the Great, who sought to take his life. And when he failed to do so, ended up killing a whole village, full of ch- uh, the children of a whole village. As he was a little older, even his family opposed him. His mother and his brothers thought he was out of his mind, tried to pull him away from his ministry and bring him back home. His hometown of Nazareth rejected him. Jesus said a prophet is not accepted in his hometown. They rejected him. The Pharisees through his whole life, not just here, rejected him. The priests, the Sadducees rejected him. The Romans somewhat unwittingly worked to his crucifixion. Even one of his own disciples, Judas, betrayed him. And all of his disciples flee when persecution comes. His whole life he faced opposition. Not everybody is eager to praise and hear about Jesus. Friends, you and I, of course, if we follow Jesus, if we praise him, if we witness about him, we will face the same type of rejection at times. You're going to meet people who are going to say, I'm not interested. So if you invite your one or others, people are going to say, not interested, leave me alone. That's fine, friends. That's okay. 40% of people say yes, that means 60% of people say no, right? Move right along, pray for them, and maybe wait for another time to try again. Then there are those who are more actively in opposition. There are those who are viciously attacking the Christian faith. It's not just that they themselves are not interested, but they are actively seeking to end the Christian faith. They're actively seeking to stop what Jesus said would be unstoppable. Hopefully you saw this this morning in the news in Egypt, a powerful blast, this is straight out of the headlines, rippled through a Palm Sunday service at a Coptic Christian church in northern Egypt, killing 25 people and wounding 60 others. Right on Palm Sunday. As I, think, as I heard, the device was actually put in the altar in the church, in front of the church. It was sad. What do we do with these people? The same thing. Move right along, pray for them, 
And perhaps if the Lord gives opportunity, tell them about a Savior who has come even for them. Recognize that the opposition isn't only human as well. It's a spiritual battle. It's, it's not just a, human, a different human, different people who are in opposition to you. There's a spiritual battle that's constantly at work. Satan, his only desire is to stop worship and to stop witness. That is his desire among us. And there, friends, this battle is not a battle that we fight with weapons of this world. It's a battle we fight spiritually with prayer. Don't let anyone or anything stop you from praising the king. Don't let a negative person, I'm, I'm, I'm going to guess that everybody in this room probably has a negative person in your life, whether that's a family member or a friend or a coworker or whatever it may be, who says to you, you're wasting your time with this Christian stuff. Wasting your time with this church stuff. Who do you think you are anyway? You know, you got this holier-than-thou attitude. You're better than everybody else. That's your problem. You think you're better than everybody else. That's why you go to church. You're a hypocrite. I know what you're really like. I grew up with you. There's no way you can really be a follower of Christ. What do you do? Keep sharing your faith. Recognize that the Lord is on your side and that opposition is just part of the game. Friends, it's always going to be there. Recognize that there's a spiritual battle. Pray. Keep your nose in the book. Keep coming to church and be built up and strengthened for the faith. And keep witnessing and praising the King of Kings. Praise Jesus as the passionate King. Praise Him for His control, His sovereignty, His providence over all of life. Praise Him for His power, His authority, and praise Him even in opposition. I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. Anyone here ever, we'll say this way, have you ever seen the movie or read the book? Lord of the Rings. That's, okay, come on, we've got to have more hands than that. All right, good. Well, this isn't going to make a lot of sense if you're not a big Lord of the Rings fan, but uh, Tolkien, the author, uh, obviously uh, he was a Christian. He was the one who led C.S. Lewis to faith. We're big C.S. Lewis fans, big Tolkien fans in my house. Uh, well, the, it, Tolkien did not like allegory, so he doesn't have an Aslan lion figure. He, he didn't like that direct allegory. But most people would say, nevertheless, Christ sort of comes in to his story because he's a Christian. But no one person can represent Jesus perfectly because he's just too great. He's the king of kings. He's too great for any one character to fully represent. And so instead, you have characters that partially represent the king. You have Aragorn, who in his courage and his valor represents the king. You have Gandalf, the wizard, in his wisdom and his compassion for all creation that represents the king. But you also have Frodo, who represents Jesus in his sacrifice, his willingness to go to whatever lengths, and even ultimately, in a sense, give his life to save others. Friends, that's the type of king that we have. A king who's not only courageous and wise, but willing to lay down his life. He's the passionate king. Not just meaning he's passionate for his people, although that he is. But he's the king who's come to suffer, to save sinners. We're in a men's Bible study this last uh, couple weeks ago. And one person said, you know, as we're reading through these commands and scriptures, it feels like every new command is a new stone upon my chest. <laughs> just the weight of that was crushing for him. And we said, you know, let's take a break here. Let's talk about the gospel of grace. 
Let's remind each other what Christ has come to do, to rescue sinners. We'll never live up to this standard. We pursue it, but we, come, we serve a king who has come to redeem us, and he does it by his passion. He does it by the cross. He does it by his death for sinners. He's the passionate king who has come to redeem us. Let's praise Jesus, friends, as our king. Would you pray with me? Well, our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for what we get to celebrate here on Palm Sunday, that the Messiah has come. That the one that Israel waited for throughout centuries, ages after ages, indeed, even in the very beginning, even in Genesis chapter 3, we see the promise of this coming Messiah. And not only Israel, Lord, but even all the world claims and longs for a Savior who will rescue us. And we see the fulfillment of that in Jesus Christ. Lord, though the crowd that day did not fully recognize how he would do this, how he would redeem us, we do as your people and as your followers. We know that he does it ultimately through the cross in which he takes our punishment, where he pays our debt. He bears upon himself the judgment of God so that those who have faith in him receive his righteousness. So Lord, I thank you for all that are here today. I pray that those who are following you would be encouraged in their faith to follow the king who is in control, to follow the king who has power, to follow the king even in the face of opposition. But Lord, I also and especially pray for anyone here who maybe doesn't know the Lord Jesus personally, maybe knows about Jesus, but doesn't know him relationally, intimately as Savior and Lord. Lord, I pray that you'd be with them on their journey, that you would make clear yourself, that they would see you as those who know you see you, as beautiful, as good, as saving, and as the one who will redeem us and carry us into eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.